Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Good evening, guys. My name is Iniswat, for those who don't know me. And uh, I'm going to be sharing a bit from God's Word with you. Um, the portion that I'm going to share from is um, written by um, a guy called Luke. And uh, I think maybe many of you will be able to relate to him, especially a Santon crowd, because he was a professional. <laughs> Lots of professionals in Santon. He was a doctor. Um, and an uh, interesting guy, because um, every, um, every uh, portion of the, even the New Testament was written by a Jew, a baptized Jew, except Luke and Acts, which was written by Luke, who was a Gentile. He's the only, uh, he's the only non-Jew who wrote part of the New Testament. So he's a very interesting guy. And he, he was a, he was, he's like the historian par excellence of, of the New Testament. And he records this interesting story in Luke chapter 22 about Jesus just before he, he gets crucified, where Jesus institutes uh, a special meal called the Lord's Supper. And after, at the end of the service, we're going to have communion together. We're going to celebrate that meal. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about and just highlight a specific aspect of, of that meal and, and, and what it means to us. So I'm, going to, I'm going to read it. Uh, I've entitled my sermon, A New Community. I'm going to read Luke 22 from verse 1 to 27. And it's, uh, you, you're welcome to uh, follow on your smartphone or on your, in your Bible or whatever you have that, that you read. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, from the New International Version. You can follow along with me in, in your Bible if you like. It says, um, Luke 22, Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he, may, how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them where no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be, cru- had to be sacrificed. And we, we sang quite a bit about uh, the lamb being sacrificed. Verse 8 goes on. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and, pre- make, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. He said, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of, of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is uh, 
eating the Passover, but he says the Passover is going to find fulfillment. Uh, and he's going to show us how it's going to find fulfillment. Verse 17 goes on. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. I, f I find that strange, you know, if, if I had to... Um, sit at table with a me uh, you know at, at a meal with Jesus himself probably the last thing the last topic of conversation would be like who's the greatest you know who's the, who's the man <laughs> let's discuss that who's the man you know but somehow the disciples arrived at that topic <laughs> so also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, like I said, one of the main topics of this passage, and, and it, it's, it's implicit rather than explicit, is community. And we see it in a few different ways. Firstly, it's the whole occasion of this meal, of Jesus instituting this meal, is the Passover. And the Passover was a festival um, a Jewish festival which they celebrated annually um, as a community. So you celebrated it as a community. In fact, the whole family, the extended family, was drawn into this uh, thing, and um, the children, and then they, they ate the meal together, and each element of the meal had a meaning, and it was interpreted by the head of the family. In this case, Jesus. But the interpretation that Jesus gives... Even though the apostles and the disciples had experienced communion probably dozens of times in their lives, they'd never heard this explanation before. Okay? But the point was, it was a community, a family thing. The family came together and they celebrated this uh, Passover annually. But, but not only that, the Passover, when they celebrated the Passover, they remembered what God did to their, for them, the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, when God basically made them a community, a nation. Before that, they were a bunch of slaves, and then God brought them out during the Exodus. Remember the ten plagues, Moses, you know, the burning bush, all that kind of stuff. God brought them out, and the, just before the Exodus started, they ate this Passover meal. And they painted the blood of, of the lamb on the doorposts um, of their houses. The death angel passed over them, and then the next day, the Exodus happened. 
and they, in a sense, became a nation, a community. Um, but not only that, it, it, it talks about, um, in verse 3, about Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. One of the twelve. And later on, it, uh, I didn't read that now, but it says that, uh, you know, that, that the twelve apostles will sit uh, on thrones judging the twelve tribes. So the, why did Jesus choose twelve apostles? Why did he choose twelve? The number twelve is significant. Clearly, it points back to the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, Israel as a community. When Jesus chose 12 apostles, for the Jews in his time, it would have been crystal clear what he was doing. He was starting a new Israel. He was starting a new Israel. Symbolically. That was what he was doing. He was starting a new community. Which is connected to this new covenant that he refers to uh, later on. But not only that... um, this, this whole Passover thing was a, was a meal. He says, I desire to eat the Passover with you. It was a meal. And in those days, meals were, I mean, even today, you know, when you want to have fellowship, when you want to have communion and, and so on, you, you eat together. That's one of the really great ways to, to have fellowship and to, to have communion together. Um, we even have the saying, you know, we must break bread, you know. <laughs> we must get together and have fellowship. But in those days, it was even much more so. I mean, one of the things that Jesus got into a lot of trouble and conflict with the Pharisees and stuff with is because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Why was it such a big deal for Jesus to eat with the wrong people? Because when you, yeah, when you eat with someone, you associate with them. It's a sign that you accept them. That you accept them for who they are. So, so eating together means that the people that you eat with, you accept them as part of your community. And... Um, then also, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the best definition I've heard for covenant is, covenant is extended kinship. Covenant is extended kinship. Kinship as in my next of kin, my nearest living relative. So extended kinship. When I extend kinship to someone, I extend family relations to them. I extend family relations to someone that, that's not my family. So, for instance, marriage. When you get married, you make a covenant. When, I, when you get married, you extend kinship to someone who's hopefully not family of yours, you know. Uh, you extend like fam, family relations to them. In other words, we, so when Jesus talks about a new covenant, when he says this, this um, cup is the new covenant in my blood, he's talking about a new community, a new family, family relations that he's extending uh, to someone. Let me just grab some. And um, so we see that the whole issue of community is right there, underlying this whole passage. And um, I just want to share three things about uh, community. Firstly, how much we need it. Secondly, how inevitably we destroy it. And thirdly, how Jesus sacrificially fixes it. Okay? How we need it, how we destroy it, and how Jesus fixes it. Okay, so let's look at that. Um, God created us for community and for communion. If you, if you look at, at Genesis 1, right at the beginning, you know, um, it's interesting. One of the first things that God says about people is, it, it says, and God said, and, and just interesting, the word God there in the Hebrew is Elohim, which is plural, so, but they don't translate it, and God's said. They translate it, and God said but it's in the plural, okay? Let 
me. No, he doesn't say let me. He said let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule um, you know, as our representatives. So here's the interesting thing. God as a divine community who is mentioned in the plural and who says let us, plural, God is a divine family. He's a divine community. God as a divine community created us for human community. Let us make man in our image. Part of being in God's image, God as a relational God, as a God of relationship, created us in His image for relationship with one another. Now, the God of the Bible is the only God for whom that can be true. If you, if you think about it, um, any God, I mean, all the, the other gods... Um, you know, all the gods in a polytheistic system didn't exist for eternity past. The gods who existed for eternity past are gods in, of monotheism, Islam, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and so on. But if, if, let's, take a, let's take Christianity and Islam and just compare them with one another. The God of Islam, Allah, is not a divine community. He's just one. The Quran makes it very clear. If you say Trinity, you know, referring to God, then according to Islam, that's heresy. Whereas the God of the Bible is a divine community, is a tri-unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here's a question I have. If Allah could exist for eternity past with no one and no relationship, is relationship important to Him? I don't think you can make it make a case that relationship is important to him if for eternity past he could live without it. Whereas the difference, the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis, the God of the New Testament is a divine community and he was living for eternity past as one God, but three persons. Let us. In other words, he was living in perfect community and in perfect relationship and therefore he could create us for relationship. Um, and then he goes on um, at the end of, of Genesis chapter 1. And it says, And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God celebrates, just like Stefan was celebrating a lot of things uh, this evening. God celebrates what he made. He looked at it and he said, it was very good. You know, so, so often we look at the creation as it is now, as, as society as it is, is now, and things don't look so good. And we think, why did God create it this way? Well, God didn't create it this way. When God created it, it wasn't such a mess. <laughs> we messed it up. <laughs> okay? God said it was very good. Look at all of the he had created. And, you know, after every creation day, he says it was good, it was good, it was good. And then after he created mankind, human beings, in his image, he says, it's very good. Very good. But then, in chapter 2, he says something very interesting in, in verse 18. He says, and the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. In the midst of everything that is good, good and very good, there is something that is not good. What is not good? In the midst of everything that is very good, it's not good for people to be alone. It's not good for humans to be alone. We were created to be like God. We were created for community. That's our purpose. That's our nature. That's how God created us. We are created for community. And, and, you know, our experience confirms this, doesn't it? I mean, you see many biographies written of people, you know, after, after they've passed away. Um, 
and, and often biographies obviously are written about successful people, you know, people who have like really made it in the world. But often those successful people are people who are successful at what they do at the expense of relationship. Often they are successful because they were willing to sacrifice relationship in order to be successful in their career or whatever else. And then it's so often, it's, it's, it's so painful almost to read at the end of their lives where they almost pathetically reach out to all the people that they neglected, to the families that they neglected in, in pursuit of their success. Where they, at, where almost when it's too late, realize that you know, all the success, all these accolades, all these trophies, all these accomplishments, all this money doesn't really mean all that much unless I have someone to share it with. It's tragic. It's tragic. And, you, and, and, and that just confirms we were created for community. We were created for community. But, but not only that, I mean, in our experience, we, we know that we, we, we aren't even able to fully enjoy something beautiful without sharing it with someone else. Isn't that so? When you hear a song that really touches your heart, what do you want to do? What's the first thing you want to do? You're going to find someone else and play the song to them, right? <laughs> or or when, you, when, you, when, you're, when you're standing on a mountain and you see the most beautiful sunset, what do you want to do? You, you wish someone was there with you, someone you care about, someone you love was there with you to share this experience with. Because even our enjoyment of beautiful things is not full or fulfilled unless we can share it with someone else. We created for community. C.S. Lewis discovered this, um, this truth that it takes a community to know an individual. Uh, when he had a group of, of writers, it was, uh, I can't remember all, all their names, but it was C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien. C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia series and Mere Christianity and so on. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote, wrote uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, there was a guy called Barfield, and there was one or two other guys um, in, in the group called the Inklings. And they were a bunch of, of British writers, and they would get together and discuss their story ideas with one another in a pub, you know, over some cigars and, I don't know, beer or whatever. I don't know what they did. But, you know, in community. You know? And they were good friends, and they've been friends, you know, at Cambridge for, for many years. Um, and then one of them died. One of them passed away. And um, Lewis said it was actually strange because you would think that now that, um, you know, say the one who passed away was John, I can't remember his name, but say it was John. Now that John had passed away, I would have more of Ronald. That's what he called J.R.R. Tolkien, Ronald. I, I would have more of Ronald. But it turned out that I actually had less of him. Because there was an aspect of Ronald, there was a side of Ronald that only John could bring out. And when John was no longer there to bring it out, I no, I no longer saw that side of Ronald. <clears throat> it takes a community to know an individual. That's why we need community. You can't just say, oh, it's, it's me and my fiancé, you know, and we, we're walking with Jesus. No, no, if you really want to know your fiancé, that's great, that's fine. But if you really want to know your fiancé, you've got to know her as part of a community. Otherwise, you'll never really know her. You know the same is true? You, you know the same is true about Jesus and about God? If it's true for a human being that it takes a community to know an individual, how much more is that true for God? How are you going to know God all by yourself? You're not. 
There's a, there are aspects of God that only the people around you can bring out for you to see and discover. We were made for community. We need community. We need community. It was interesting. I, <clears throat> you know, we, we like, we like a, a thread, you know, um, that is weak and boring when it's by itself. And we need to be woven into a tapestry for us to be strong and beautiful. Interesting, we sang, I think one of the songs that we sang, sang about was about the thread of grace. Was that, is that right? Well, how does the word go? <laughs> you just sang it, you know. <laughs> about the threads of grace. But, but we like those threads. We only really come to our own and our, our, our strength and our beauty, our true beauty only really comes in out when we're woven in, intimately woven into the tapestry of community. Only then can we paint this beautiful picture. So our experience uh, confirms what God teaches us um, about the importance of community. So we, we need community. But the problem is community always breaks down. We as human beings always break community. We destroy community. In this passage, Luke powerfully portrays a pervasive community-destroying disease for which Jesus is the only cure. Powerfully portrays a, a pervasive, community-destroying disease for which Jesus is, is really the only cure. And um, <clears throat> you might have missed what he says, but <clears throat> let me just try and highlight it to you um, by bringing up a few things. Firstly, um, he mentions in the beginning of the passage, he mentions the, you know, if I can speak in narrative terms, the, the bad guys of the story, you know, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the temple god and the, the, the guys who want Jesus, who want to kill Jesus, right, who are plotting to kill him, uh, and Judas who's plotting to betray him. Um, so he mentions all these guys, and these guys have this disease, okay? So firstly, you have the chief priests. They want Jesus dead. Why do they want Jesus dead? They want power, yes. I was sharing this morning, political power. What is politics about? So that power, how you use it to govern. And these guys are afraid of losing their power. They say so in other places in the gospel and in the other gospels. They say, listen, we're going to lose our power. If this guy is really the Messiah as he claims to be, or even if he isn't, you know, if he is, then we have to surrender our power to him. If he is, uh, if, if he isn't, and, 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 and you know, the Romans are going to hear about this, he's, the Messiah is a king who's a threat to Caesar, and they're going to come with the whole Roman army and they're going to wipe us. And we're going to lose our power in any case. So, so this guy is a threat to our power. Okay? Well, the, the, the teachers of the law, they had religious reasons. They had figured out a system of interpreting the law in such a way that they could actually fulfill it. In other words, that they could save themselves. Whereas the chief priests wanted to rule themselves, the, the teachers of the law wanted to save themselves. And here comes Jesus, and, he's, and he makes the standard of the law way too high, and he breaks their whole little system. Because he says, you know, um, you've heard it said by you very teachers of the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you just look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You know, Jesus interprets the, the law in a way that destroys the way that the teachers of the law interpreted it and destroys their little self-salvation project. So it's a big threat to, to their whole little system. 
Then you got the um, you got Satan. Okay, I don't have to say too much about him. <laughs> Why did he fall in the first place? He wanted to be like Jesus. He, want, he wanted. I mean, what? After Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, he came up out of the water. Uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove. The heavens were torn open, and God the Father was just so excited. He said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he leads Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tempted. And one of the things right at the end that the devil says to me is, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Just fall down and worship me, and it's all yours. Just fall down and worship me, and all of it's yours. He has a spiritual reason. He wants worship. He wants to be God. The devil. Okay. Then you have Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples. He'd been walking with him for probably a couple of years, seen miracles, and been involved in the whole ministry, seen what Jesus did. But clearly it wasn't enough with him. Clearly he was a little disappointed in the benefits that he was getting from being part of this ministry. I mean, he'd signed up, you know, because he thought Jesus was the Messiah, in other words, the anointed Jewish king, and that he was going to wipe the Romans off the map, and then he was going to rule, sit on a throne and rule, and then he, Judas Iscariot, is going to have power and money and riches and all kinds of other stuff, and, and he wasn't getting it. He, he saw things weren't going to work out the way he wanted. The benefits didn't he was, they were a bit disappointing to him because he'd actually signed up for the benefits, not for Jesus. He'd signed up because he wanted the benefits. He didn't want Jesus. So he was disappointed. So he said, I'll go and get the benefits somewhere else by betraying Jesus. And they'll give him money. Now, here's a question. What do all of those motives have in common? Yep, me, selfishness all about me. It's about protecting myself. It's about promoting myself. It's about taking care of myself. Selfishness. All of them. And that is the disease. That is the, the community, the pervasive community-destroying disease that all of these bad guys in the story have. But here's the shock. It's not only the bad guys in the story that have it. <laughs> I mean, listen, listen to, to what it, it says. <clears throat> Here in, um, oh, I can just find the scripture again. In uh, towards the end of, of the portion I read, in uh, verse twenty-five or verse twenty-four, it says a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was good to be considered the greatest. You see, the disciples are not much better. <laughs> They're also fighting about, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, listen, yeah, you, got, you know, Peter, you, you're good and all, and, and, you know, God uses you, but not as much as he uses me, you know. In fact, James and John say, listen, we deserve to sit on Jesus' right hand and left hand, you know, you know, in his kingdom and all that. And, and big fight breaks out, and, and all the disciples say, no, 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 come on, you know. You don't see what we're doing. We, we're just not as loud mouth as, 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 as you and James and Peter, you know. But behind the scenes, we're actually doing a lot. We're actually greater than you, you know. And I can just imagine this, this argument breaking out. And Jesus has to chip in and he said, listen, you guys. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. I mean, just... That just rings so true, doesn't it? I mean, if, just look at South Africa. 
You know, how our political leaders lord it over people. And, and, and <laughs> often, often for, for, for very selfish reasons, for self-enrichment, for, 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 for self-preservation, for them and theirs, them and their families. Nepotism, corruption, rampant. And the f- strangest thing, I mean, just like, exactly like Jesus is saying it, the, the guys that are the most selfish are the ones who say, you know, we're doing it for the people. We are their benefactors. We're doing it to benefit the people. <laughs> I mean, it, doesn't that ex- ring true? Human nature hasn't changed. The way it was with leaders in Jesus' day is the same as it is in, with leaders today. Selfishness destroys community. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. Now, for us as Westerners, this doesn't always carry the punch it should because we sort of nowadays tend to idolize children. <clears throat> but... Um, you know, it was interesting. I was, uh, we are the guys from Malawi. Can you just, uh, from Tanzania, sorry. The guys from Tanzania, can you just wave? Only a couple of you guys left. The rest all went home. Huh? Some of them left, okay. But it was interesting. They visited us on Friday evening, and we were eating soup. And it was interesting to me. In our culture, what we would do when we serve food is we'd first go to the ladies. You know, ladies first. You know, that's part of polite you know, good manners and whatever in our culture. But they didn't. You know how they went first? First to the oldest, and then to the second oldest. All the way to the youngest. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Now, now in Jesus' culture, it was more like Tanzanian culture than like South African or American or whatever culture. You know, how older, the older you were, the more honor you had. The more stature you had. And, and yet Jesus says... If you want to be the greatest, you must be like the youngest, the one who has the least honor, the least position, the least stature. And then he says, uh, you must be like one who serves. One who serves. You know, and, 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 and it is so totally not the way most communities are. Most human communities naturally tend towards that selfishness of, I don't want to be the least. And I don't want to be the one who serves. I want to be served. And then I want to say, as I'm being served, that I'm letting them serve me for their benefit. I'm their benefactor. <laughs> it makes me think of the immortal words of Lord Farquaad in, in Shrek, where he says, Some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> I mean, that, that so captures the spirit of leadership in the world selfishness it's a sacrifice when i'm going to sacrifice i'm going to sacrifice with your lives i'm willing to sacrifice your lives isn't that true ay 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 and it's easy for us to laugh at that but um you know if we're really honest with ourselves and our more sober moments, we know we're a bit like that, at least a bit like that too, aren't we? You know, um, one of the most powerful and beautiful things about marriage, if you're a Christian, is how God uses your selfishness against you <laughs> to make you more like Him. Isn't that so? Any married people know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 
you walk in close relationship with anyone, a spouse, parents, children, people that you cannot, that you don't just see from time to time and with whom you can not just put your best foot forward now and then, but whom you, with whom you cannot avoid being yourself because you spend a lot of time with them, then you start realizing how selfish you are. Your selfishness gets exposed. And it's not nice, you know. That's, that's one of the not nice things about community. And when we hit that wall of selfishness, we either withdraw out of selfishness because we selfishly don't like to be, ex- to be confronted with our selfishness, or we try- go on the attack. And we attack the people whom God is using to expose our selfishness, which is also selfish. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> In other words... Just like the chief priests and the teachers of the law, just like Judas, just like the disciples, just like the rulers of this world, all of us are sitting with that same pervasive community-destroying disease of selfishness. And what are we going to do about it? The problem is, and I think that's part of the reason why it's so beautiful that Jesus chose the Passover, the commemoration of the Exodus, out of bondage, slavery to Pharaoh, and into freedom under God. Why he uses this as the occasion? Because we are also under bondage. We might not have a Pharaoh who's ruling over us, but we have our own selfishness ruling over us. We are in bondage, we are in slavery to our own selfishness. And Jesus says, I'm going to start a new exodus, where I'm going to lead you out of captivity, out of captivity from yourselves, and into the freedom of selfless sacrifice. And how am I going to do it? Through selfless sacrifice. The selfless sacrifice of myself. I'm going to sacrifice myself. And he says that over and over again in in many different words. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. In other words... What, he, what he's saying is, you know, when you do this, when you eat this meal, when you, when you eat this bread, when you drink this cup, remember me. Remember what I did for you. Because I did, I mean, there's only one person in the history of mankind who didn't have this pervasive community-destroying disease of selfishness. And that is Jesus. That is Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one who's not infected by it. And that's why, in a sense, I, I mean, think of, um, think of his blood as having the antibodies to selfishness. And then when we drink the cup, we get those antibodies in. And it builds up our immune system against selfishness. And enables us to get free from it. Now, um, that's how Jesus sacrificially fixes uh, this problem, this disease, you know, cures this disease. Um, the reality is, <clears throat> naturally, we are at enmity with God. Naturally, we are at enmity with God. In other words, like, let me put it this way, Adam and Eve. 
they, they get this command from God, you may eat from all the trees, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. Um, and when, they, when Adam and Eve moved God out of the center of their lives by disobeying him, something else had to come to the center of their lives. And what's the closest thing that you can center your life around on at hand? Self. And, and we see, we see what, what comes out. What happened exactly directly after that? Adam said, Lord, this woman that you gave me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. And Eve said, uh, Eve uh, said, uh, Lord, it's the snake. <laughs> he deceived me and I ate. And of course, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Um, <laughs> But we see that self-preservation instinct, that knee-jerk reaction of self-preservation kicking in. Excuse the pun. Um, and <laughs> thank you for those who got it. <laughs> and immediately you can see the center of gravity has shifted from God to themselves. And now it's all about self-absorption, self-centeredness, selfishness, self-preservation. The disease kicked in right there, and we've been suffering from it ever since. Ever since. Until one man came along who said, and, and, and hear this, hear this. Jesus said, I'm going to pour out my blood for you. I'm going to let my body be broken for, for you. The one who didn't deserve it, the, the one, the only one who didn't deserve it said, I will allow this to be done to me. And he's saying that to, I'm going to selflessly sacrifice myself. He's saying that to people who just don't get it. I mean, just after he says it to them, they start arguing about who's to be considered the greatest. For those kinds of people, in other words, people just like you and me, he who don't get selfless sacrifice, we don't get it. To people like us who don't get it, he selflessly sacrifices himself. For us, people just like us. Who don't deserve it. Who don't understand it. Who don't get it. He sacrifices himself for us. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is that we are so guilty in our selfish self-centered, self-absorbed state. We are so guilty that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we are so loved that He was glad to die for us. We're so guilty that He had to die for us. And yet we are so loved that He was glad to die for us. And you know what kind of community that creates? It creates a community who remembers Jesus, remembers the one who selflessly sacrificed for them and says, well, if he selflessly sacrificed himself for people like us who didn't deserve it and who don't even fully understand it, should we not at least try and do the same and selflessly sacrifice for one another? Now, here's the thing. There have been communities like that who have said, we must try and be holy, we must try and be selfless and so on. Uh, let's get together and form a community. But then... The test is not only how they treat the ones on the inside who agree with them, who believe the same things as them. It's easy to selflessly sacrifice. Well, it's not easy, but it's easier at least to selflessly sacrifice for people who agree with you, who believe the same thing as you. 
But the real test comes. Are you willing to selflessly sacrifice for those who believe different from you? Because that's the charge that is often brought against us as Christians, right? Christians are fundamentalists. Christians are, you know, they, they, they're dangerous because they think they have the exclusive truth. And, and communities that think they have the exclusive truth, they treat people who disagree with them about the truth badly. Well, it depends what your exclusive truth is. If your exclusive truth is the gospel, that <laughs> who has at the center of it a man who selflessly sacrificed himself for people who didn't appreciate him, didn't understand him. Even the chief priests and the teachers of the law, guys like Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul the Apostle, if that is at the center of your truth, then you're going to treat those who are on the outside who believe differently from you with the same love that you will treat it, even though you believe the wrong things even though you didn't understand the truth that he, of who he is and what he did. You see, it creates a community. In other words, what I'm trying to say is Jesus at the center, Jesus at the heart, the community Jesus created. When we, as we eat and drink, remember him and what he did for us, it drives us to do the same for others on the inside and others on the outside. People on the inside who are selfish, like us, and people on the outside who are selfish, like us. It does two things. If you understand that you were so guilty that Jesus had to die for you, it humbles you. It humbles you. Because the greatest price in the history of mankind, the life of the only begotten Son of God, had to be paid for you, so that you could be forgiven. Knowing that you are so guilty that Jesus had to die for you, it humbles you. But knowing that you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you, it exalts you. It makes you confident. It makes you so confident because it's, it's like, wow, you know, if He, Jesus, the perfect one, considers me worth His life, if He loves me that much, how can I not be confident? And my confidence is not based on, my, on what I'm able to do, what I'm capable of. It's based on the value He places on me by giving His life for me. You know what happens then? You are so confident that you do not exclude yourself from the community of Jesus. And yet you are so humble that you don't exclude anyone else from the community of Jesus. You get that? And Jesus creates through His selfless sacrifice a community the most beautiful community ever. A community that selflessly, imperfectly, but selflessly sacrifices for those on the inside and for those on the outside of the community. As we follow the example of Jesus who selflessly sacrificed for us. Isn't that amazing? And in other words, let me just try and make this a little bit more practical. You know, so many people, when they walk into a, a room, party, or a group, any group, there are usually two questions that jump up in people's minds. Naturally. Do I like them? Do I want to spend more time with them? Do I like them? Or, and, and or, do they like me? <laughs> do they want to spend time with me? You know what both those questions have in common? They're driven by that pervasive 
community-destroying disease of selfishness. Do I like them? How do I feel about them? Are they good enough for me? Or do they like me? Am I good enough for them? Both of those questions are very self-centered questions. And what I'm saying is the community Jesus created, and add to the extent that we remember Jesus, the selfless, sacrificing one, we no longer ask those questions. Those are no longer the, the questions that come up in our minds when we, look, when we meet a new group. It's no longer, do I like them or do they like me? We're no longer driven by that selfishness. Okay, that, you might say, okay, Annie, that's all good and well, but you know, how, how, how do I, where, where do I get this cure? How does the cure that Jesus has become mine? Let's hand out the com- elements of the communion. That's the cure. <laughs> that's the cure. Remember I said in Jesus' blood, you have the antibodies to this, to this disease. That's the cure. Uh, as we were worshiping here, Forgive me, you know, if some of you think this is a bit profane, but um, all of a sudden this, um, I remembered this movie that I watched with my kids called Trolls, I think. It's about these little colored, colorful people with a big hair. You know, all of them have like big hair, you know. Anyone of you seen this movie? Very few of you, okay. Here's, 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 the, here's the crux of the movie. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a... You know, after I watched it with my kids, I wondered, you know, should I have allowed them to watch it? But anyway, there are these trolls, and they're so happy. They're, they're, they're the most happy people in, uh, creatures in the world. And then they're, 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 they're small, you know, and they live in this tree, this beautiful tree. And, and then there are the other guys. Okay, what, are, what are the other guys called? Gruns or something, I can't remember. They're these big, you know, down, you know, grumpy guys, you know, and they, they're never happy. And until one of them took a, a troll and ate it. And then he became happy. And he's like, whoa! You know, this makes me feel happy. And then they, they started developing this annual... But they, they had to do it over and over again because the, the happiness would die away, you know, slowly, you know, and, and dissipate slowly. Um, probably as they digested the poor troll. Um, <laughs> And worked it out of their system. You know, they're happy to have So they, had, they would have, have an annual. Eventually they, they developed this annual festival on which they ate the trolls. And then got happy. You know? And it was a big thing every time you know, a, a, a kid of these grumpy stuff you know, ate their first troll and tasted happiness for the first time. It's, it's shocking, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, as we were worshipping, I was, I was thinking of that story. And I... And I and I realized that's such, a <laughs> that's such a parody and such a distortion of actually what Jesus does for us. As we eat Jesus, we drink his blood and, and eat his body symbolically through the, the bread of the communion or the cup of the communion. Just like the happiness of the trolls got into these unhappy, nasty creatures, so Jesus and his selfless sacrifice, his selflessness, and his cure, the antibodies to our selfishness, gets into our system. And he cures us of our disease of selfishness. And to the extent that we feed on him, take him in, remember him, ingest him, allow that which is him and that which represents him to become part of us, we become like him. And we become able to get free. 
and he leads us in this new exodus out of because here's the thing you know selfishness is a terrible taskmaster worse than pharaoh ever was to the jews in egypt selfishness is a terrible taskmaster you'll always work and you'll never be happy serve that master and he will he'll work you to death literally but jesus is leading a new exodus jesus like the prophet as the prophet like, uh, like moses he's leading a new exodus where he's busting us out busting us out of the oppression of the self and setting us free but we also have to celebrate the passover just like the the jews did on that night and we've got to paint the door the blood on the doorposts of our hearts and then we've got to eat the lamb symbolically taking in the sacrifice that was made for us and drink the cup which represents his blood and then he makes us like him so what i want us to do now is in the context of what i shared about community i want us to just take your chairs turn them towards one another in groups of how much groups of five okay we <laughs> groups of five six seven whatever but just turn to each other in groups and then we're going to hand out some bread and some cups and i want you to take this and i want you to have communion together the way that jesus and his disciples would have Actually, you can turn in groups of 10 or whatever you want to. So just, just turn your chairs towards one another. And I want you to break bread. And I want you to pray for one another. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you received produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobo.